This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. Okay, you're listening to Spooko, the podcast in which lots of things happen, but Mm. for the main part, (laughs) we're slowly introducing Peach to horror films through Wikipedia synopses. And Mm. one of the cool things that's happened is uh, I think Peach has got to the point where horror films are filling his subconscious to the point where he's, he's already come up with a really great idea for a horror film called Eyes Up. Now... You know, like we work in creative field. I mean, we have we have many different creative pursuits, mm. and one of the first lessons you learn when you take any sort of creative pursuit seriously is that you can never start with your best work. It, it just doesn't happen. Like you have to build up to your best work. Like people don't get that you don't get to an amazing thing. For, it's like I, I, I've been obsessed with Radiohead lately because I feel like they're the one band that's getting me through this pandemic, and. The band that wrote OK Computer, the band that wrote Kid A, their first album sucks so much. Like it's <laughs> like it's it's not that, like it's not like it's not the way. If, if anybody else made this album, you'd be like, this album's fine. But there's a song called Anyone Plays Guitar, and there's a moment where he maybe ironically, maybe not ironically, sings like Tom York sings, "I wish I was James Morrison" or like Jimmy, Jimmy who's the guy from the Doors? You know who I'm talking about? I think about. that's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it just it's just the worst. So I'm not trying to denigrate great eyes up but the thing is it's like eyes up as much as no no and as much as i love eyes up and as much as i love all the cameos and the twists and turns it was arguably a post-apocalyptic adventure uh rather than a horror film so recently peach sent me a long string of messages he does this sometimes sometimes i'll be out and is it weird from your end when it happens there's a moment in every like there's, there's that moment in, you know, being in a long-term couple. Um, it doesn't matter how long you've been together, how many kids you have together, what, mm. like, what you've been through. If you're getting texts late at night, the other member of the couple is like, so who, who's sending, <laughs> who's sending all who's these yeah, texts How's in? everything going? Yeah, and it's yeah. always in this nice thing. It's always like, oh, like, like in a way where the, it's very nonchalant. It's like, oh, who's... Who's that text from? I don't like. I don't care. Just don't like. Don't even care. Maybe I'll just have a look at. You know, it's that sort of vibe, right? Yeah. And so, so it's always like you know, we're just sitting down, like watching like RuPaul or whatever. And all of a sudden, I'm getting. I, you get one text that's easy to ignore. Yeah, like four in a row. It's kind of like, are you gonna get? That? Is that so? So anyway, so I get a million texts from you, and I and, and I'm really bad. Like we've talked about friendship homework last week where yes. a friend 
uh, essentially assigns you homework by saying, hey, you should watch this film or you should yes. see this show boo, or you should boo, listen to boo, this song. Boo. We hate friendship homework. Yeah, because it becomes this obligation and it's annoying mm. because like a friendship should be easy breezy. It should, like Obviously, friendship is commitment, but it's not that sort of commitment. 100%. Time is all we have. My reluctance with friendship homework is so bad that it extends to long text strings. Like, I'll read the first text. I'll read the most recent one. And then my brain will try to fill in. You know how, like, that's the way our brain reads words, right? It doesn't read every letter. It reads the first letter and the last letter. And it kind of works it out, right? Or at least... And you've evolved past that now for it to work for text message strings. I don't think I've ever read the full page of a book. I sort of start in the first chapter and I sort of work my way down. I'm like, yep, that's what happened sort of thing. Anyway, so, so, so I started reading your text message and it just kept coming... But from what I've seen, it is a far superior film than Eyes Up. It's a legit horror film. It also has a spine-tingling title that I don't want you to get to until you actually explain this this synopsis till the end that yes. makes me chilled. And I'm amazed no one's done it before. Maybe they have. I tried to have a quick look. I didn't see anything. So, Peach... We we've decided we've got a, we've got our successor to Eyes Up. We're assuming Eyes Up has made four hundred million, given yes. us a little bit of a you know a leg up. You know, producers are taking note. But pitch, tell us. Let's talk us through your next horror film pitch because this is a legit horror film. Yep. So everyone in Hollywood is saying, "What crazy post-apocalyptic <laughs> action film are you guys going to come up with next?" Right? They're going like, "Oh, you think I should make the post-apocalyptic action films? That's awesome." What, what have you got for us next? And um, the answer is um, the next film uh, coming from Spooko Studios. <laughs> Spudios? Spudios. Um, it's, set, it's set at a preschool, right? Um, Great setting to begin with. The, the only other film I can think of that's set in a preschool, or the only two... Mm. is that French documentary about a preschool, which is lovely, and Kindergarten Cop. They're the only two films I know of in the history of art that are set in a preschool. So, great opening, very spooky place. So, um, music plays an important role, right? And there's one song that'll be early on in the movie. And, Shag, just to set the scene, I'll take you to Section 41 of the Copyright Act 1968. It's Commonwealth Act that applies across the country. And it's just, it's just about fair dealing. Now... Um, Many of you will be familiar with fair dealing in section 41. Now, a fair dealing with an artistic work is that uh, a use of a work is not infringement if it's for the purpose of criticism or review and if there's sufficient acknowledgement of the work. So, I'd just like to play you a bit of a great song that I review as great um, by (laughs) Ockerville River called Unless It Kicks from their 2007 album Stage Names. And... um, Uh, This film, the title of which we'll get to, begins with a sort of scene-setting extended montage where we really get to know our characters and our scenario. And this is the song that opens it. And Shag Shag edits these things, so Shag will decide how much of this great song, 9 out of 10, excellent review, uh, that you hear. People are getting ready. Lunch is getting packed. We're getting a sense of middle class, but some aspirational parents. 
Some people are flustered. Some people are a bit rushed. Some people are a bit grumpy. But flying out the door. Clips in the seatbelts. One kid gets bopped, a little bit hurt, but it's alright. We get a band-aid on. And there's just a level of anxiety. A level of tension. We're also at the preschool. Staff's coming in. There's a bit of yelling. We're not hearing the yelling, but we can see it. There's lots going on. Essentially, everyone's getting ready for preschool, but it's high tension. Great song, 9 out of 10. Section 41 on the Copyright Act. Go look it up. They're dealing. <laughs> I love it. I'm there. I'm there. So what happens? What happens after this montage? So, um, after this montage, uh, the film starts properly. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. what the good montage start, is. Good start, though. Good. It's a fun uh, red herring of a start because a jaunty indie, you know, mid-2000s indie rock song is not what I expect at the start of a horror film. And so, there you are. Um, uh, and it looks fantastic. It's very, that sort of teal and orange Michael Bay filter. Like, everything looks very Instagram-friendly. <laughs> And Mm -hmm. we're just going to do a little bit of foreshadowing very, very early on where there's some little accident where a door is opened and some child is what appears to be horrifically hurt, but is only mildly hurt. It's sort of like a bleeding nose that bleeds profusely, but, oh, we get it under control and sort of almost a jump scare early on, but we're all just sort of like, oh, okay, what's going on here? And essentially what we're walking into is a world where we're dealing with a kindergarten let me go back to my notes as i try to remember what i wrote to you um where um it's a fairly high pressure um kindergarten and um so it's sort of an elite kindergarten yes that's it's 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 in a it's probably in a high socioeconomic area you there's probably a waiting list to get in it probably has a bit of a rep and this understanding that if your kids don't go to this kindergarten, well, you might as well, like, boot them off a cliff because you don't care about their future. That's right. And so what we're seeing is all these anxious parents who are desperate to get their kids in and anxiety is running high. And um, this uh, film is told through the eyes of a new employee at the kindergarten who is a very good-looking, um, reasonably effeminate gay man um, who is dealing with the gender issues of being the first sort of man to to work at this kindergarten because it's a kindergarten with a long tradition. And so we've got a real sort of odd one out kind of perspective where we're just getting to know the systems. We're getting to know the high expectations. We're getting to know the anxieties and problems and difficulties that, that, that you know, these high expectation parents and high expectation teachers face. And I really like that because you're already playing on that, you know, that suspicion that already exists for any man. And I'm not, I'm not being like, I'm not a meninist or whatever. I'm just saying mm. that there's always suspicion with men that work in childcare. Um, I did work in childcare, like in uni, mm. and like I totally get that. I understand that feeling that people had. And especially a gay man, uh, like it sucks to say in the world that's still a thing, but there's absolutely still a suspicion around that. And I like the fact that this film plays on that suspicion. And so he arrives, he's got his PhD, and he arrives bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as a sort of, I'm going to go to the leading preschool, I'm going to put to work my PhD in early childhood learning, and he's super-duper optimistic, right? He, like, he's like, I'm coming in, bright-eyed, this is it, this is, this is my one big hope, and there's probably a background of having a difficult childhood life for him and all this sort of stuff. 
And um, all our parents are very big on status, very big on social climbing. We're seeing a lot of brands. Um, the preschool is quite near a shopping center. And so there'll even be ugly satire about um, dads and mums dropping their kids off and then going off to buy things or going off to indulge themselves. Peach, you are going hard onto messaging in this film. Like from the get-go, you have a lot to say with this film. Yeah, look, I basically said it all. <laughs> <In fairness>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what sort of unfolds um, through this film is that um, the kindergarten is uh, essentially an indoctrination, um, an indoctrination uh, venue that sort of owes a bit of a debt to the atmosphere of Suspiria and the atmosphere of Midsummer, mm-hmm. where children are slowly um, dragged into loyalty to the centre and they're eventually indoctrinated to turn against their parents and only have loyalty um, to the new parents or new families to whom they will be assigned. And so, um, because I don't know how to tell stories, I don't know how to get there, but essentially... I've given away the twist. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, there'll be some heartbreaking reveal or whatever it is. And our high spirited, um, very optimistic um, new recruit, our highly educated new recruit is sort of heartbroken at the end. And just as we began with a montage um, we're going to finish with a very Section 41 compliant song that I give 9 out of 10. Um, that's from the Decemberist, their 2015 album. Uh, it's called A Beginning Song. I give this one 9 out of 10. What a great review. What a great fair use <laughs> of this. Um, and this is the song that comes in just as our protagonist uh, has his heart broken uh, when he comes to understand what this preschool is all about. And that's essentially the closure of the movie. Ironically, the song's called Beginning Song, and it just kicks off with Let's Commence, and we're heartbroken because there's no way out. We're seeing people shop, we're seeing them buy more things, we're seeing new parents sign up, we're seeing kids led away, and we leave the cinema heartbroken. In your mind, find yourself in time. Find yourself in time. The film. The title. I'm waiting. Should I be waiting? The spelling's important. It's K. I wanting. Should I be wanting? E. Ah. And so then in the press for the film, people will ask you, hey, how do you pronounce the title? And you go, you know, we never really talked about it. And the director will say, well, I never really knew and I never really asked. And so the question obviously is, is it kinder or is it kinder? 
um, you know, kinder in, in not kind of, but kinder, should we be more kind, increasingly kind, or kinder as in children? And Shag, it's a heartbreaking look at consumerism and a bizarre preschool where children get indoctrinated to hate their parents. So, Lena Dunham famously sold in girls with like a page synopsis to HBO and they immediately bought it on the spot. Uh, And I mean, she did that based on, you know, her privilege and some other reasons. We are not unlucky in our lives. So you would expect, I guess, for you to have that similar privilege, especially after, you know, the 400 mil success of Eyes Up. I got to say, Peach, I'm not buying it straight away. I have some notes. I have some feedback on a few questions we need to answer before we go into production. Does it help to hear I'm very, very precious and I'm really... And you're going to have to tread really, really carefully with my feelings about it. Is that... I'm really attached to every every part of it and... All the best creatives are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Talk so, to me. Oh, so, okay. All right, all right okay. Um, first of all, love the title. I don't agree that there should ever be any question about how it's pronounced. <laughs> like, I, I think it's obviously pronounced kinder. If Girl. it's pronounced kinder, I just do not care. If it's pronounced kinder, my eyebrows raise like I'm like a cartoon cat that's just seen a mouse walk by. Like, I am into it. All right? So that's Sick. number one. All right. Number two, I, like, I don't really know what you're satirizing. Like, I know <laughs> yeah, you're neither. vaguely saying some things. <laughs> As, as much as we can, you know, point some, you know, fingers at Jordan Peele for being a little heavy-handed, at least his satire is... Su- like, his satire is great and it's super clear. Like, you come out of it being like, I know what that was about. Uh, so, so there's that. But then the main question for me is... Mm. Or I guess the main point <laughs> is that in this era mm. of Hereditary, of Midsummer, and other films that Ari Aster didn't direct... I think we need mm. to go a bit darker with that central twist. And I want to know why they're being indoctrinated and who these new parents are. Like, I don't think it's enough that they're just being given to some new parents. Mm. Like, I don't... That's not... That's not... Like, it, when you say that these children are being indoctrinated to turn against their parents, I'm like, sick. I mean, mm. and then you're like, and given to some other parents... I'm a bit like like the 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 part yeah. of me that wants to be disturbed that wants to see something truly fucked up is like two out of ten. I'm not satisfied. Well, look, I guess it's easy <laughs> to throw stones when you haven't come up with your own <laughs> kindergarten themed movie. <laughs> but I, sorry, but I should just say I think they're extremely good points that that we're going to need to that we're going to need yeah, to address. Yeah, but some one stage. of the things I did want to say, which I think is actually really fucking yeah. cool about Kinder is that the best horror movies take an existing fear and dramatize it into something either supernatural or absurd or, you know, at least, you know, narrative-wise that isn't that exact issue, right? A great example of this is Wolf Creek. Uh, As I know now, shout out to... Our listeners, mm-hmm. one from Sydney, one even from Australia. Thank you for listening, number one. But number two, you might not know that uh, the film Wolf Creek, super successful Australian slasher thriller horror film based on a serial killer in the outback, is basically based on the fear that pretty much everyone in urban areas of Australia has like a fear or a distrust of, you know, 
the outback in general, like, you know, remote areas in general, but also the people from it. Like, I, I think there is generally a, a prejudice from urban areas to non-urban areas. And I think what Wolf Creek did was mm. build on that fear masterfully by turning one of these classic Ocker Australian larrikins into just the worst serial killer of all time. Like, I know it's roughly based on a couple of Australian serial killers, but I think more than anything, it plays on that fear. And I think what you've done there is play on the fear that every parent has when they have to eventually let their kids go either to childcare or to kindergarten, in this case, or to school, is the idea that... <laughs> If I'm not looking after my children, will they, you know, are they in the right hands? Will they, you know, am I letting them go to, you know, harm? And will they, I guess, you know, in a weird way, turn against me? So I think that is masterful and we need to keep that. And that connection with the turn on the parents, we need to absolutely be twisting that knife. Whatever, however horribly twisted we take that reveal. And look, I do want to give a shout out to our growing community on Insta. As always, search us on Spooko. We've been getting quite a few messages this week. One of the things I would love this week is any ideas about what we can do with kids. Like, and Peach, I know you're precious. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't really want to change anything. That's the, like, just, I just like positive, supportive, just thumbs, just lots of thumbs up, I think, basically. And the, worst pieces of art, the worst pieces of art are made by <laughs> go, one go, person go. solely. So feedback <laughs> makes everything better. No matter good, bad, whatever, feedback always makes things better. So please, if you have any thoughts about Kinder, um, send them our way. I also want to give a shout out. Like, I want to do like a little bit of a sort of Insta mail bit before we get to our film today uh, because there's been a couple of really good messages. So- um uh, one of them was, I think, really important is that when we were talking about 1-4 um, a couple of weeks ago, I did I did say, I did miss say mm. that they were um, representing Campbelltown, and of course they're not, they're representing Mount Druitt, which, which... Mount Druitt. At some point, like we've said before, at some point, Sydney does need to reckon with its uncool past in that Mount Truett was a punching bag for a long time purely because it's a pretty poor so like it's a pretty low socioeconomic mm. area and for the longest time it was basically a punchline in jokes that it's like oh imagine going to Mount Truett so shout out to One Four for like flipping that on its head actually repping it I think that's kind of amazing um, we can now call it Mountie just like just like um, Nick Loopy and Jimmy Nice taught us to call the inner west the I-dub um, which is now the most expensive place to live mm. in Sydney, and where you live, Shergan. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah, true, um, true. I'm in the, I, I am in the, like, I'm in the outer inner west, but I'm still, I'm in the, I'm in the inner west where you know it'll be gentrified in like five years' time. Like you, you can all, like you can kind of see it happening. It's weird. Like there, I, I think in many ways, Get Out is a film about gentrification, and gentrification does have sort of like insi- like it's you know it's it's a thing like it's not necessarily an evil thing it's just a thing that happens people create culture and then money buys yeah. culture and then people then go to somewhere that they can afford and create more culture and money buys that culture and so on and so on like it's just one yeah, big yeah, it's yeah. one big circle right um and it's just funny living in an area where where you can see it coming you can see it's it's on the horizon you can. It's just in the air. You know it's happening. So yes, I am. I am absolutely in that area. Um, so we'll have to move out to Mountie next. It'll be sick. <laughs> well, I mean, Mountie will probably be gentrified now because of one four, and then <laughs> yeah. then that'll be that'll, that'll be that, and there'll be nowhere anyone can live. Um, 
But, 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 uh, the other thing I wanted to give a shout out is we've had a whole bunch yeah. of really good suggestions for films, and today we're doing one of them. This is from friend of the pod, Sarah. She was basically like, I'm watching this film now. I think it's really cooked. I, I love that expression. I've, I've never been a, like a, a drug person in any way. To me, the word cooked is like, mmm, cooked, delicious. Like, it, it's not like, oh, you fucked it. Like, oh, that's a bit crazy. I'm like, oh, it must be well done. It must be. Yeah, tell me more. <laughs> tell me about how it was cooked. <laughs> so she was like, look, this movie's cooked. I'm sure the wiki uh, synopsis is cooked too. I'm actually kind of excited because it's a new film in an old franchise and a franchise we haven't touched yet. Uh, so, to- so today. Thanks to Sarah. Shout out, Sarah. And please keep more suggestions for films coming. We are doing Amityville, The Awakening. Documented cases of anyone with James's injuries ever recover. Something's not right in here. I keep seeing things, hearing things. It's not you. It's the house. In 1974, the owner of this house murdered his whole family. He said voices told him to do. Can you hear them too? Isn't everything inspired by true events? Is there there any any film not inspired by true events? I know copywriting's hard, and uh, uh, I've never made a good movie trailer or any movie trailer at all. But it strikes me as a fairly, fairly poor claim to make. But pitch then, as a copyright lawyer, surely then you could argue that no one has any grounds for copyright because every work is based on something that came before. Oh, this is... <laughs> we don't need to dive too deeply into it, right? But the argument is no. And the argument is because the answer is no, copyright law is poorly adapted to deal with contemporary society. Like what 10 years ago was cool to call cut and paste culture. Um, <laughs> copyright law was poorly adapted to deal with cut and paste culture where child- children might make memes, which is to take a photograph of something and then add unrelated text. But in essence, you are right. Copyright law is uh, probably about 50 years behind where it needs to be. But luckily we are still in the past, Jack, and we are compliant with the Copyright Act. And I say, inspired by the true event of the Copyright Act receiving <laughs> royal assent and becoming binding Australian law, we are going to be inspired by our true events and comply with it tonight. Well, I guess it's, it, I guess it's it like a fun movie. It looks spooky. Well, yeah, no, I, I, I haven't seen... Like, I, I'm always excited when I do one I haven't seen because the Wikipedia... Like, we really have to make the most of this Wikipedia synopsis. When it's a film I've seen, <laughs> I can start to flesh things out and be like, this is what you've missed. Yeah. But we're really relying on this now. So I do hope it's as cooked as you say, Sarah. Now, just a little bit of, uh, a little bit of context around Amityville. So it actually is a really interesting... Uh, it, it, it's a really interesting series because it's based on a book that came out in 1977 called The Amityville Horror. 
but that was based on an actual historical event that happened in 1974. So this is true. What I'm saying now, uh, this isn't meta. This is actually something that happened. So uh, Ronald, in 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and- Can I just interrupt with apology? I hate doing this podcast alone in a dark house when like everyone else is asleep and I can't see what's behind me. (laughs) I mean, well, the other thing is it's like, I think these, these sorts of stories are tailor made for people in your situation because they're basically about, and I'm not giving too much away here about how like evil houses can inspire evil acts in people. Like, so just like, and and they're always sort of slightly, you know, large houses that are remote and removed from, you know, larger populations. But anyway, so this is based on a true story. So in 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six members of his family at 112 Ocean Avenue, a large Dutch colonial house situated in a suburban neighborhood in Amityville on the south shore of Long Island. He was convicted of second-degree murder in November 1975. Part of me is like, you kill six members of your family and you're convicted of second-degree murder. Feels like he had a very good lawyer on the case. Oh, I, you know, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that the mens rea is super important in the difference between first and second degree. I think if I'm getting Australian law and US law confused, but the mens rea essentially is your state of mind. So if you are competent enough to form a state of mind and have a very calculated plan, then that is worse than being a fucking crazy lunatic going, I'm just nuts. And so the punishment for, say, um, engaging in organized crime and being, a, being an assassin is, I understand loosely, uh, worse than being a crazy in the coconut. Uh, I hear voices and so kill people. Does that also include crimes of passion, as they, which is a horrible term, but, you know, things committed in the moment reactively rather than proactively? I think yes. And we're now in the dim recollection of law school from 15 years ago of a subject I only got a credit for and, uh, <laughs> and, and have been <clears throat> riding high on that credit ever since. All right. Okay. So uh, anyway, anyway, so Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed six members of his family at this particular house in Amityville. Uh, then mm. in... 1975, the next year, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children moved into the house, but after 28 days, they leave the house, claiming to have been terrorized by paranormal phenomena while living there. Now, that's true. This is, this is the true story. Now then, so that's 1975. Then in 1977, this book, The Amityville Horror, is written, and it's written about it, and it sort of dramatizes what happens. But because it's based on a real thing, and because of the 70s, and I guess storytelling hasn't evolved that far, it's basically like, it's kind of like War of the Worlds. It's like, well, this, this is a true thing, and this happened, or maybe it didn't happen. You know, it's like meta... Like postmodernism is still in its infancy. If oh, maybe it doesn't even exist. Is postmodernism the idea? I don't know. But anyway, yeah, man. Post <clears throat> postmodernism is in from like fifty eight, sixty. Like when you start making houses that look like windmills and shit like that. Okay, so it's but it's still not. It's it hasn't reached fever pitch. Yeah, yeah. But Bart's 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 wrote Death of the Author in like nineteen sixty eight, and Foucault's talking about panopticons in like nineteen sixty five, and smooching heaps of babes and and doing whatever else you do if you're a post structuralist. Shag, you wouldn't say the Amityville house looked much like the house I'm currently in, would you? Because I'm actually really starting to freak out a little bit. 
Especially because it's true. When it comes to meta, this is like the matterest thing ever. Because obviously the Amityville Horror was originally based on a true story. Now this film is a sequel to the original Amityville Horror, but it's based on the idea that the book and film actually exist. And so this film exists in a universe where the Amityville Horror as a book and a movie exists. And the house oh, exists. and we're still moving into the house. Yes, because okay. it's a real house. And, you know, the Ronald DeFreo Jr. is a real serial killer from the 70s. Fucking sick. Did they, film, did they shoot the movie at the house? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, look, I, I mean, know. with a budget of... No, no, hang on. With a box office of 7.7 .7 million, I don't... No. I'm not sure that... Uh, I'm not sure no. that they had the wherewithal to... To, to sway it's that. tough times. Yeah. Anyway. It's tough times. And that was in 2017. So you can't be like, well, that's oh. 80s dollars. That's 2017 dollars. <laughs> and in fact, I think money's gone down since. So like, <laughs> I think every economy is stalled. So. It's the most, it's the most valuable money's ever been at <laughs> that, that 2017 value. <laughs> All right. Okay. <clears throat> so we start with teenager Bell Walker moves to 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island with her mother, Joan, little sister, Juliet, brain-dead twin brother. I don't know if that's a... Like, if that's a medical term. Oh, but fuck, maybe it is. Uh, <clears throat> whose name is James, as well as her dog, Larry. No, the dog's not going to last the film, is no. it? No. Uh, R.I.P. We talked about this in the crossover app with Too Scary Didn't Watch, is that it's a shitty trope. Like, stop killing the dog to... Sh to Spook, like it's not fair the dogs don't deserve to die and the dogs <sighs> can't can, like the dogs don't work out the horror anyway it's such a wasted waste of a death anyway so the family's reason for moving there was to be closer to Dr. Milton a neurologist hoping to treat James who was left on life support after an accident upon moving in Juliet who is Belle's little sister tells Belle that James has been talking to her lately using a lot of curse words in her um, in her vernacular. One night, James flatlines, but is mysteriously revived and opens his eyes. So that's the prologue. There's probably a Ockerville River song playing over the top of that. <laughs> anyway, we come to we come to school. So at school, Belle is taunted by her peers over moving into the home, which she learns was the site of a mass murder by Ronald DeFray Jr. in 1974. In her bedroom, on the third floor, she discovers bloodstains from the murder concealed under the wallpaper. One night, Belle invites acquaintances Terence, an enthusiast on the Amityville haunting, and Marissa over to watch the Amityville horror from 1979 at the house. At 3.15 in the middle of the film... Which, again, was a powerful number in The Conjuring. Maybe, I think The Conjuring might have been based on this. Anyway, so anyway. At 3.15 in the middle of the film, the power goes out and the three go into the basement to locate the fuse box where they are confronted by Joan, who thinks they are intruders. If you remember correctly, Joan Who's is Joan? the mother. Joan's the mother. Joan's the mum. Sick. Joan's the mother. Belle's the main character. Juliet's the little sister. James is the comatose brother. Larry's the dog. Sick mode. Sick. Okay, so... R.I.P. Larry. Dr. Milton is the neurologist. The one with doctor in it is the neurologist. <laughs> Dr. Milton, who suspects James may have locked-in syndrome. Now, locked-in syndrome mm. 
also known as... You as, have like an encyclopedia sort of thing <laughs> there, like sort of an online resource that can help us with this stuff. I mean, lucky there's a hyperlink. So locked-in syndrome <laughs> yeah. is also known as a pseudocoma, is a condition in which a patient is aware but cannot move or communicate verbally due to complete paralysis of nearly all voluntary muscles in the body, except for vertical eye movements and blinking. That is just oh, the worst. Oh. That is just... Whew. Like, who needs the ghost that is almost certainly going to walk through that door and spook me out <laughs> when I could have locked-in syndrome? Like, well, imagine I, if you had locked-in syndrome and ghosts. Well, yeah, there'd be an element of like, well... <laughs> don't, know, don't know what's left, ghosts. <laughs> Respect, or maybe that's very disrespectful to people with locked-in syndrome, actually. I think I withdraw that. Mm. I'm sure there are people with locked-in syndrome living rich, fulfilling lives. Totally. And that was an insensitive thing for me to say on reflection, and I withdraw it. I'd be spooked out, locked-in syndrome or otherwise. Okay, so... So, Dr. Milton, who suspects James may have locked-in syndrome, performs tests on James that show increased function. During the test, he witnesses an apparition of flies filling the room and attacking him and leaves the house shaken. James quickly gains the ability to communicate with the family via an AAC computer system that allows him to type by looking at the letters on a screen, which is pretty sick. Terence suggests to Belle that James' sudden revival may be a result of a possession stemming from the house. He and Belle suspect... <laughs> Using my neurology skills. <laughs> I think you think the house might have possessed him. Well, no, this, that isn't even Dr. Milton. brain superpowers. That's just, no, but that's Terence, who we remember is the Amityville... Oh, that's Terence, sorry. I, you, you went through the names, in fairness. I'm sorry. Uh, but, yeah, so he and Belle suspect that a ring on the ground surrounding the house may represent a magic circle. So Belle asks James if someone else is inhabiting his body, and he replies yes and help via the computer, which is pretty fucking spooky. So he asks her to kill him, and she begins to unplug the machine, but he suddenly attacks her. Joan enters the room and finds that James is now breathing on his own after finding the red room in the basement, which she believes to be the source of the power. I, uh, so, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. No, 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 hold on, hold on. This is cooked, in fairness. <laughs> this is fucking cooked. <laughs> so, no, no, so, so Belle finds the red room in the basement, which she believes to be the source of the power. Belle confronts her mother with the theory that the house is possessing James. Joan reveals to her that having lost her faith in God after the death of her husband and James' subsequent accident, she moved the family to the house, hoping to harness the demonic energy there in order to bring James back to life. Okay, so classic. I mean, the same reveal you just did of Kinder is like... That's an amazing twist of the mum's like, yeah, man, like I know there's there's demonic energy here. Like, what do you think I'm doing? I kind of love that in most films, it's like, I gave up on God and now I'm a nihilist. I love that she's like, no, I gave up on God. Now I'm into Satan. Yes, sir. Let's see what he can do. I love demons. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that night, as Belle prepares to leave, Joan knocks her unconscious. Belle awakens at 3.15am, just as her aunt Candace arrives at the house. James rises from his bed and harnesses energy from the red room, which revitalizes his body. 
Belle makes her way downstairs as Candace enters the house, but James shoots Candace with a shotgun. I'm just what? I'm like, so I don't. So Candace was just showing up. We don't know. I up until now in this synopsis, Candace has not existed. Maybe there was some foreshadowing of her in the film, being like, "Your aunt Candace is coming over, and she if she sees demons, she's I'm coming to help. Like, oh, I'm just coming to help James. <laughs> <laughs> like bloody hell." <laughs> Belle retrieves Juliet from her room, but is unable to open the front door. Joan is confronted by James in her bedroom. Knowing she is facing death, she retrieves her crucifix and holds it towards James, but he is unaffected. He reminds her that with the loss of her faith in God, he is not able to save her. He shoots Joan in the chest before throwing her on her bed and shooting her in the head. Okay, alright. I'm I'm confused like... The, the present is, like, haunting James to punish the mum for wanting to use the demonic presence to bring yeah, him back like to life. Yeah, like, the mum's like, I, I love you. I think you're great. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know about the demonic presence. It's like, well, you should have believed in God because now i got to kill you. And it's like, what? I love that's the lesson. The lesson is believe in God mixed with be careful what you wish for. It's a spicy combo of the two. Like, oh, I'm the demonic presence. I help you some more. It's that classic American, uh, you know, uh, mentality where it's like, number one, believe in God because he'll let you, he'll do anything for you. But number two, know your place in society and stay there forever because that's that's where you belong and that's where you deserve to be. That's where God wants you to be. <laughs> so James is able to lure Juliet to the third floor where he attempts to kill her, but is stopped by Belle who tackles him, resulting in them both falling from the window. She drags James outside the magic circle, after which his body withers. He dies just after telling her, thank you. Yeah, 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 okay, yep, yep, okay. Tiny bit more. Yeah. A newsreel epilogue reveals that Belle is being questioned in the murders of her mother. Isn't she a child? Isn't she at school? Yeah, she's in high school. So a newsreel epilogue reveals that Belle is being questioned in the murders of her mother, aunt, dog, and brother but that her sister, Juliet, corroborates her story and that James's fingerprints were discovered Isn't on Isn't she a child? That evidence is useless <laughs> as well. Like, like... The, uh, okay, yeah. And then it ends with another news report commenting on yet another tragedy occurring in the Amityville house. I love when a story needs multiple news reports at the end to tell what happened. <laughs> Like, you can't just have one news report. It's like, here's like four in a row to just to just finish off the story a little bit. Nice and clean. You can have a voiceover afterwards where being like, and so, as we learned in the news reports. <laughs> that actually was pretty fun. That was a good one. That was... I don't, I don't feel like it was an extremely scary one. It was a scary trailer to watch in this scary Amityville house that I'm sitting in. But I feel like that was that was nice and cooked, Sarah. I think you've done good. That was awesome. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?